This morning, we want to take a look at a famous story, but a story that shows up in our Bibles, uh, if we read closely, in italics. So have you ever had a moment where you, you know a story, uh, but you're not quite sure when it happened? You ever, you ever have one of those moments where you, you know something happened, but you're not exactly sure when it happened? And so sometimes people try to help you, and they're piecing it in different places. So there's a story in the ministry and livelihood of Jesus that scholars are certain happened, but the earliest manuscripts of Scripture place it in a couple different places. So for us, it's in John chapter 8, and you can turn there, but it's in italics. So I wanted to pause before we jumped into it this morning and just kind of address that reality for you and what's going on there. And know that I am more than comfortable believing that this uh, story is, in fact, Scripture. Uh, Otherwise, we wouldn't be teaching on it this morning. There are two kinds of criticism that come in uh, in thinking through the Bible. There's what scholars call higher criticism. And higher criticism really is dealing with, is our parts of the Bible true? Uh, And the chief conclusion of much of higher criticism is, no, they're not true. Uh, And as as people who believe in the inspiration of Scripture, we do not agree with that assessment. Then there's uh, what's called lower criticism, and lower criticism is also sometimes called textual criticism. And if I'm nerding out on you for just a minute, just stick with me, because I just want you to know why it's in italics and not kind of freak out when you open it and we start to read it and your Bible's like, well, in the earliest manuscripts, this wasn't here. And you're like, why is Pastor Adam reading this to us? There's this thing called textual criticism, which basically says it tries to get as many of the earliest copies of these letters that compose Scripture. And it, it, it's able to conclude from the earliest copies what is the, the true composition of what's in the Scripture. The problem is that in some of the early copies of Scripture, this story shows up in Luke's Gospel, not in John's Gospel. And in other copies of the earliest copies of Scripture, this shows up in a different place in John's Gospel, or isn't in in John's Gospel altogether. So, all this to say, and I can have a longer conversation with you if you're interested in really getting into the nerdy stuff with me, is that scholars are not sure that this is where this story belongs, but they are sure that this story is true and that it is a, a right retelling of what uh, really happened in, between Jesus and this woman. So, John chapter 8. Hopefully, I didn't bore you so much that you're not going to stick with me. This is the story of Jesus teaching in a synagogue and the Pharisees bringing in before him a woman caught in adultery and kind of using it to put Jesus to a test. Let's read this. John chapter 8. They all went home, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. At dawn, he appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him. And he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now, what do you say we should do? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. 
But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. And when they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, Let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. And again, he stopped and he began writing on the ground. And at this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where is everyone? Has no one condemned you? And she said, No one, sir. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. There are three different characters or groups of characters in this story, and we need to just pause and try to understand where each of them is coming from. First, we have this woman, and all we can imagine is that she is experiencing a high level of shame and a high level of terror, right? If you put yourself in her position, she's ashamed because of what's happened, and she must be terrified because of what the Pharisees are proposing should happen to her. Let's pause then and look at the Pharisees. The Pharisees, you might remember, are a group, a sect of Jewish Jewish people in the days of Jesus who believe that the way the people can get back to this close relationship with God is through very strict obedience to the Old Testament laws. So strict that they invented a whole bunch of buffer laws to make sure they didn't accidentally step over lines at any place and in any way. And if only people would begin to live this way, then God would dwell with his people again. The Romans would be gone and everything would be well. So the Pharisees, it's not surprising, bring this charge up. Now they are motivated by two things, I think. And knowing the Pharisees through the scriptures, we can probably conclude this is true. The first thing they are motivated by, because they are motivated by this in almost every story that they encounter with Jesus, is they're motivated by demonstrating their own moral superiority. Right? So the Pharisees are the kind of people who pray things like, God, thank God I am not like this lowly person over here. Or remember last week when we said that Jewish people, uh, because of Deuteronomy 15, had tassels attached to the corners of their garment? Jesus actually records in the gospel that the Pharisees put giant tassels on their garment. Why? So they can show that they're really dedicated to the law, right? So we'll just call the the Pharisees the giant tassel people, right? They're the ones who kind of want to throw their religiosity in everyone's face. Look at me, look at me. And so the Pharisees, in part, are bringing this woman up there to say, look, there's all these people in our community like this. If people would be more like us, then we could have the kind of society that we wanted, a religious society, and God would be with his people, and everything would be like it should be. They're smug, they're arrogant, they believe their religiosity is key to the heart of God. But the second thing we know they're up to, and we know this because it's recorded here in this story, is that they intend to test Jesus. They do not like Jesus because Jesus hangs out with these kind of people, right? And so they want to put him to a test. And the the key to their test is, okay, when push comes to shove, when the law's on our side, is he going to keep siding with these people like this woman? And the test is pretty ingenious if you stop and think about it. I mean, the Pharisees must have thought, we've got him, right? Because the law does say exactly what they said it said. 
right? For a woman uh, or man, by the way, we'll talk about where the man is in just a minute. For a woman or man caught in adultery, there was a capital punishment reality in the Old Testament. Now, before we get too far down the line of thinking, yes, the Old Testament God just wants to kill everybody, actually the laws of the Old Testament were far more gracious than even our laws in our society today. It required two eyewitnesses to not just hear about or presume, but see the act actually happen before it could even be admissible in a court of law, right? So all of this is going on. The Pharisees believe the law is on their side. And so Jesus is going to have to make a choice in their mind. He's either going to have to agree with them that the law is right, and by so doing, he becomes a hypocritical Messiah, right? Uh, a Messiah who has said, there's, there's life for all kinds of people, and if you would only follow me, I'll give you life, except in this case, if you would follow me, I'm going to put you to death, right? You see the, the difficult situation they've put him in? Or Jesus could side with this woman again, but then in so doing, Jesus clearly goes against the law. And so for the Pharisees, they've got Jesus just where they want him. Unfortunately for them... <laughs> Jesus has got them exactly where he wants them, right? And he's going to have an incredible response to this. The Pharisees are motivated by these realities. And then in Jesus, we see something fascinating. We see Jesus answer this test in a truly unbelievable way. What he basically does is say, yes, the law does say exactly what you says it does. And we should follow the law. But we should follow the law to the letter of the law. And the law demands that we have valid witnesses. And so Jesus says something fascinating to them. He says, let the one without sin be the first to cast a stone. Jesus is not talking universally about someone being completely pure. He's talking about in this particular situation. And there's three things at which he might be driving at the Pharisees. The first is, the law says if you have committed adultery, you can't bring charges against someone else for committing adultery. The first thing Jesus is saying, hey, if you ever messed around in this way, you are not a valid witness for this. And you might remember in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, he's also said, Anyone that looks at a woman in the wrong way has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So he's saying, yeah, we should follow the law, but he's disqualifying the Pharisees on the basis of the law. It's fascinating. The second thing he's saying is, if this woman didn't do this, then you're lying about it. You're bearing false witness to this reality. Then you also are disqualified. And then the third thing, and I think this is probably the big thing he's actually driving at, is that the law demanded that witnesses and judges be completely impartial. Remember last week we saw that Jesus is impartial. He receives people no matter who they are. But to catch someone in adultery means two people, right? And yet the man is mysteriously gone in this situation. He's nowhere to be found, not even spoken of, completely gone, And so Jesus identifies rightly that these people have really don't have an intention of following through on the fullness of the law. They simply have the intention of throwing this woman under the bus. Do you see it? And Jesus says, for that reason, on the basis of the law, you have no right to stand as her accuser. And so it says, one by one, 
they all walk away. Because he was right. I love what it says. It says, the oldest go first, all the way down to the youngest. And Jesus has, in essence, shown that sin is not the problem of a small segment of society who, if they would only get with the religious train, we could get the world back again. But that sin is so pervasive in our world and in our hearts that it affects all of us in every part imaginable. Do you notice that Jesus does some weird things while he's doing this, right? Why does, the, why does John, uh, or whoever is writing this story, keep telling us that Jesus is writing in the dirt? This is weird, right? These are the kind of stories that my wife, who's a first grade teacher, tells me happen at the playground at recess. Right? But here's John. He's like, yeah, Jesus is like, whoever wants to cast the first turn, go ahead. And then he, bow, he gets down on his knees and starts writing in, this, in the dirt again. And, and some commentators have said, well, he's just showing them that he's poised. He's unflappable. He's cool and calm under pressure. They're testing him, but he doesn't matter. He's right. Well, that's fair enough, and I think that's true. But something deeper is going on here. Why is the, the storyteller continually recording that he's writing in the dirt? This is weird stuff, right? This would be the thing you would just omit and say, Jesus was calm and cool in the test, and he passed. He, they wouldn't say he's writing in the dirt, and that, you know, we should read into that, that he's calm, cool, and collected. I think something actually much more profound is happening. That in Jesus' actions, he is symbolically demonstrating both to the religious elite and to the broken people of society that the new covenant that God had promised through the prophets was coming into its fruition through him. Now you might remember uh, these words, new covenant. Jeremiah chapter 31 God says that a new covenant will come and no longer will the laws be written on tablets of stone. Remember the Mosaic kind of Ten Commandments reality? But now instead these laws will be written on our hearts that, that, that no longer will we have to follow external rules to please God, but instead that God will do the changing of our hearts to be able to connect us to him. The old covenant was certainly gracious and certainly based on the idea that God wanted to dwell amongst his people, but it demanded an external obedience to a set of laws, a a human uh, condition that the prophets also reminded us was impossible. So in Jeremiah chapter 17, remember Jeremiah is the prophet, he's the prophet who in chapter 31 says the new covenant is coming through God. This is what he writes in Jeremiah chapter 17. Listen to this. He says, Our sin is engraved in iron. Right? We, uh, a couple of years ago, got a new refrigerator. Uh, There's all kinds of stories why you should never buy a new refrigerator that I could tell you. Uh, One is they don't work. The second is when... (laughs) When we talked to the repairman about what kind of new refrigerator we should buy, he said none, right? Because new refrigerators are, are bad news. At any rate, we got a stainless steel refrigerator, and we were so excited about this. It, it looks really nice, and I think within two or three weeks, it had a dent in the bottom corner that I can see every time I go by. And, and the dent's not coming out, right? And so this, this picture of Jeremiah 17 is that our, that our, our sin, our inability to to make the right choices all of the time, to be the right kind of people. It's engraved 
in iron, right? It's not just written in the dirt. It's engraved in iron. And it goes on to talk about our heart, all the way leading up to this famous section in Jeremiah 17, where where God says that our hearts are, are deceitful in the fullness of what they are. They're wicked and deceitful beyond measure. Who can understand them? And it's speaking universally of all of humanity, that this is true of everyone, the religious and the irreligious, that the problem is enormous. And then it says that God will write the names of those who have turned away from him, check this out, in the dirt. Now you tell me what Jesus is doing. You think he's writing down some names? I bet he is. Not just of the woman caught in adultery, but of all the religious elite people too. Everyone who's trying to deal with an issue that is written and inscribed in iron through external fix-ups. Our refrigerator has some scratches too. We've got stainless steel cleaner. And every once in a while, I clean it with stainless steel and so much of it looks so good except for the scratches (laughs) because they don't go away. And this is what the prophet wants us to know. That there's something deeper something more, more pervasive, something more universal that is real. Jeremiah chapter 17 says, or excuse me, Jeremiah chapter 31, when he, when he turns and begins talking about this new covenant, he says, what once was inscribed on you in iron, now the law will be inscribed on your heart, that God will dwell with you, that he will love you. And it says that he will call his people, listen to this, from youngest to oldest from least to greatest. And here is Jesus writing people's names, and how are they leaving? From oldest to youngest. And all that's left is this woman. I don't think the purpose of what Jesus was saying was simply to show the Pharisees that they thought they knew the answers, but that they really didn't have it. I don't think the purpose of this story was for Jesus to say, I'm with this adulterous woman and not with you. I think the purpose of this story was for Jesus to say, I'm here for all of you. And they didn't get it. And they walked out. And the beauty of the story is that she does get it. She stays. He didn't say stay. She stayed. She responded. She understood what's happening. And we see some beautiful things about the forgiveness that Jesus offers anyone who would receive it. Friends, religion is not the answer to our problems. You're hearing that from a guy who works in religion for a career, right? Religion is not the answer to our problems. Sunday attendance, I love that you're here. Please keep coming. Sunday attendance doesn't fix the issues that are, that are inscribed in us in iron. Being part of community groups as wonderfully restorative and and practically important as they are doesn't fix the issue. Comparing yourself to someone who is publicly broken in sin and saying, well, I'm better than them, doesn't set you up for success. But the God of the universe has come down from the lofty places of heaven and is kneeling down in the dirt of our world and offering forgiveness to anyone who would stay with him 
instead of going on to live their own lives. Is he the God of the woman committed in adultery? Yes. But he's also the God of recovering religious addicts, right? And he's the God of people who are broken in sin in all kinds of other ways that society doesn't seem to deem as significant as this, which is weird, right? That Jesus is writing our names in the dirt to say it's gone, and yet never condemning anyone. Do you notice the, the, the un, unspoken reality of this story is, Jesus says, let him who is without sin be the one to cast the stone. Well, there is someone there without sin. It's not the Pharisees. But it is Jesus. And yet, he doesn't do it. He says, neither will I condemn you. Why? Because he's setting her up for the bigger narrative. That he himself is willing to take on the condemnation that is rightfully ours. That he's going to allow others to pick up stones and cast them at him for their own issues. That he is taking on the guilt of sin for the whole world instead of condemning us. Earlier in John's Gospel, this is what Jesus says, The Son of Man did not come into the world to condemn it, but to save it. And there he stands, two religious and irreligious people offering the same gospel. And funny how often true it is that it's far harder for religious people to get it than irreligious people. Why? Because broken people who are dealing with shame and terror they know they've got a problem. Religious people who have masked the issue with external obedience have long forgotten that they've got a problem. And yet Jesus writes our name in the dust and still doesn't offer condemnation. Earlier in John's Gospel, a Pharisee comes to Jesus and he receives Nicodemus in just the same way he receives this adulterous woman. Think about a couple of things as we think about the forgiveness that's offered to this woman. The first is that it's deeply personal, isn't it? It is not some blanket statement. He doesn't, it, Jesus doesn't let them bring him in and say, well, I, I've come to forgive. Let's, let's be done with this, this kangaroo court and it's all over. He lets it play out so that this woman can experience the true depth of forgiveness that she's offered. He lets her experience the Pharisees having to stand down, that they're actually not better than she is. And he hangs out and waits, and she hangs out and waits, and then they have this incredible moment where it seems like it's only the two of them, and he says, I do not condemn you. It's not some sermon that she has to figure a way to apply to her life. It's a personal statement that he gives directly to her. It's a message for her alone, and yet for all of the world. Incredible. And for recovering religious people like me, and maybe some of you, there's a little other message that goes on in this that Jesus has for us, right? And that is that in the depths of grace, the appearance of sin in others, two things should be true of it. One, it should not surprise us. 
And two, it should always force us to look deeper at ourselves. Jesus says famous things like, Let, instead of looking at the speck in someone else's eye, take a look at the plank in your own eye. He's not categorizing sin as some greater than some others. He's suggesting to us that even when we are the victims of sin from others, it should force us to look at ourselves, to look at our incapacity to be the kind of people God wants us to be, and to fall deeper into the reservoir of God's grace for us, and as a result, become the kind of people that God calls us to be. Jesus says, let the person who has no sin be the first to cast the stone. Hey, we live in a time and in the reality of churches where churches are quick, aren't they? We are quick to condemn people. We condemn people who aren't part of it. We condemn people in, in government situations or political parties. We condemn people on the, uh, on the headlines of newspapers. We condemn people who sin publicly in the midst of our church, and yet all of us are way more Pharisees than Jesus, right? And maybe the church, I'm not speaking about our church, but I'm including our church in the big understanding of church, should just take our foot off the gas pedal of condemning people and instead call on the grace of God for them and for us. Because what Jesus has done is open up the possibility of restoration for everyone who would stick with Him. Forgiveness is is deeply personal. It's meant for us to wrestle with the realities and, and in our repentance to experience the beauty of Jesus' forgiveness personal. The second reality about forgiveness is it's incredibly liberating. I mean, I love what Jesus says, right? He says, I do not condemn you. This is a huge and powerful statement. It's not like, yeah, you messed up. I'm going to overlook it this time. He goes big, right? He's like, neither do I condemn you. These are huge and powerful Words. I love what Paul writes to the Romans in Romans chapter 8, verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. How can he not condemn her when the law says she probably should be condemned? Because she's found a home in him, and he is taking the condemnation for her. And then lastly, and catch this, Forgiveness is deeply transformative. There is nothing that will change your heart like experiencing genuine forgiveness. Many of us struggle to kind of see our lives changed into into being the kind of people that God wants us to be. And I would suggest to you, in most cases, there is a one-to-one correspondence that we have not really internalized the gravity of forgiveness that we have experienced. We've embraced it. We've cognitively accepted it. We understand it. But we're a little more Pharisee than adulterous woman. And so, yeah, he's kind of erased some smudges around the edge. We don't understand the deep work of no condemnation that Jesus has done for us.
And I love this, right? Jesus tells her, stop sinning. Which is a bold thing for him to say to her. But he says it last. And it's important that he says it last. First thing he says to her is, is anyone left? you have any other condemners? She says, no. He says, then I don't condemn you either. And then he says, so go, and probably in some essence go in peace. And then he says, and don't sin anymore. And there's something true to this, lo- this logical progression in the way of sanctification and transformation in our life. And that is that we don't change so that God will love us more. We experience God's love more, and it causes us to change. You see it? Jesus didn't say, you're forgiven, and if you really stop it, then we can have a better and better relationship. He says, there's no condemnation. You are welcome. You are embraced. You are loved. You are accepted. No matter if you are are, are a high religious person or a person caught in adultery, publicly embarrassed, publicly humiliated, uh, probably outcast in many ways, Jesus says to her, you are loved. You are embraced. You're in. You're part of the family. And on the basis of that, go and be different. You know, it's kind of like the Old Testament story of the Exodus, right? God gives the Israelites the law, remember? And he says, I want you to follow this law. I want you to be these kind of people. But he doesn't give it to them in Egypt and say, if you do this, I'll let you out. He rescues them dramatically and divinely provides for them and then leads them to a mountain and says, these are the kind of people I want you to be. But the love of God always precedes our obedience to God. But God is not demanding you change so that you will be lovable. Instead, he's saying, you can change because you are loved. I love this story. I'm not sure if it belongs in Luke's gospel and John's gospel or where exactly in either one of them it belongs. But it reminds a person like me the hugeness of what Jesus has done for the world and that I fall in that mess. And that because of his embrace of me and his willingness to take punishment that was rightfully mine and announce no condemnation, that I can begin to be transformed into the person he wants me to be. Can I pray with you?